I chose as a topic state consent between regionalism and universalism, particular customary international law before the International Court of Justice. And before starting the presentation, I'd like to explain actually why this is relevant in the first place. Why would anyone still look at uh, something that is some, sometimes considered rather outdated, namely customary international law? I think it's been clear that um, states have perhaps increasingly have certain concerns that are of a very particular or very regional nature. And I think we can also safely conclude that the era of universal custom and even universal quasi-universal treaties is over at least for the time being. So I think what we need is to look into tailor-made solutions that do take into account these specific concerns but within uh, that will work within the broader international legal framework. Regionalism as a political political concept, of course, escapes uh, definition. It can be the sort of a collection or operation of ideas, relations, institutions or structures. And often it is geographically defined, at least in principle. Regional customary international law then according to that definition, would apply in relations between states within a certain region, but it's a very elastic notion, and it can actually only be circumscribed by reference to, or potentially in contradistinction to, universalism or universally applicable customary international law. As such, or at the heart of the regional movement, often lies an assertion um, that is a reaction against an international system, an international legal system that uh, allegedly applies universally, but perhaps ironically, it's also a system of distinctive regional and in that, by that I mean European origin itself. So what I've tried to do in this paper is to look particularly at the case law of the International Court of Justice, including the arguments of parties before the court that are based on uh, claims or rules of regional customary international law. And what I'm putting forward is that it's not the concept of a geographical region that is important, but rather the consent of particular states that matters for the formation of non-universal, regionally defined or otherwise customary law. And that can also be seen from the work of the International Law Commission in its draft conclusions on the identification of customary international law, to which I will return. Part of the paper also highlights the parallels between the making of such particular customary international law and the making of treaty law. And finally, what I try to show is that before such geographic or regional particular considerations are taken into account and given effect by the ICJ, they are first converted or there's an attempt is made to convert them to the more classic currencies of international law being universality and state consent. What I've tried to do or how I structured this paper is I first outline how such non-universal custom operates within the framework of universal custom or international law more broadly. Then I've tried to explore the method of ascertaining um, the existence of such customary law, focusing on the method and the burden of proof. In the next section, I look at state consent as to whether it's necessary or merely or necessary and or a sufficient condition for the application of non-universal custom, whereby there is a distinction between regional and particular custom. And finally, I look at how actually these rules are used a bit as an accordion, a legal accordion, to try to either expand these rules to give them universal application or to kind of compress them into a particular bilateral relationship. 
starting with the determination of the legal framework. The tension between regionalism and universalism is most acutely observed when we look at the concept of regional customary international law, because that would be referring to rules with an origin or operation in a sub-universal portion of the world, a region, yet deriving from a legal source that is intrinsically associated with universality, or at least its effect, which is custom. And the first question here is, well, but what is a region? We don't have particular agreement on what is a region. Is Latin America a region or should we split that up in Central and South America? Is Africa a region or should that split up between, for example, North Africa and Sub-Saharan Africa? And this question has to be answered and examined with regard to each individual claim. One could hypothesize that the binding force of regional custom is founded on either of two elements. First, the element of membership of a state to a relevant region or the consent by a state to the binding force of such rule. And one of the early proponents of such strong regional custom is Judge Alvarez, who was a Chilean law professor who judge, was a judge on the International Court uh, from 44 to 46, sorry, to 55. And he posited that uh, customary rules of regional international law obtain binding force among all members of a region irrespective of individual consent of each of these um, states. That position is, of course, um, highly, highly uh, controversial. Uh, the majority of the tribunal in that particular case, which was the asylum case, um, did not agree um, to, to that position. They argued that regional custom must indeed be uh, consented to by states within the region uh, before they can become binding. But important is that once such a rule is found within the region, it is opposable to third states with respect to questions affecting the region. Um, the source of regional customary international law seeks to balance between universal and consensualist underpinnings because there's something distinctive about a community of states within a region, but the applicability of such rules outside of the region, of course, always has to be uh, is premised on state consent. At any rate, uh, regional custom does not feature as a distinctive category among the sources of international law. At the San Francisco conference in 1945, um, Ecuador did propose that Article 38 of the court statute would read, international customs and principles of law, either continental or regional, applicable to controversies between states belonging to the continent or region involved. But this proposal, as well as a, a number of other um, proposals with regard to this article, was actually virtually undiscussed during um, the conference. And what is more, from the outset, the court treated regionalist considerations through the prism of general international law instead. And this entailed that such practices would either be seen as manifestations of a general rule between, beyond sorry, the confines of the region, or evidence of a specific rule whose binding force uh, on the litigant parties emanated through the use of usual vehicle of consent. The first and to this day actually still most elaborate discussion uh, in this respect can be found in the asylum case. As you know, this was about a complaint uh, by Peru against Colombia's decision to grant asylum in its embassy in Lima to Haya de la Torre, who was prosecuted by Peruvian authorities for um, alleged military rebellion. And Colombia relied on what was termed by the court as an alleged regional or local custom peculiar to Latin American states, asserting its right to qualify the offense committed by an asylum seeker 
through a unilateral decision binding on the territorial host state for the purposes of granting asylum. And the court approached this question against the backdrop of fundamental rules of general international uh, law. And it decided that this decision to grant diplomatic asylum constituted a derogation from the principle of territorial sovereignty of the host state. And as such, the legal basis ought to be pr firmly proved in each and every case. Similarly, the content of this uh, putative rule would have to be ascertained, bearing in mind first, the principle that unilateral determinations of diplomatic asylum are not per se binding on other states. And second, the rule of non-intervention in domestic affairs, both of which, of course, are rules of, of universal custom. Now, moving to assert how to assert a non-universal custom in terms of method and who bears the burden of proof. The next step to identify the method by which such a putative rule of regional law ought to be asserted, in particular the burden of proof, is um, of course that as a general matter the court is deemed to know the law. As such, for example, in fisheries jurisdiction, uh, it was stated that the court's duty to ascertain and apply the relevant uh, law was that so that the burden of establishing or proving rules of international law cannot be imposed on one of the parties. By the same token, the shared view of the litigant parties that a given rule is part of custom is not determinative, and it does not dispense the court of its task to ascertain the existence of the rule independently. Yet when it came to asserting the existence of a putative rule of regional custom international law in the asylum case, the court considered that the party which relies on a custom of this kind must prove that this custom is established in such a manner that it has become binding on the other party. In other words, this reversed um, the, the, the regular exercise, regional customary law had to be proven by the invoking party and not ex its existence not uh, checked by the um, court independently. That to some extent resembles the other main source of uh, non-universal international law, namely treaties. With the possible exception of the great multilateral treaties, it is generally accepted that the court cannot be expected to have knowledge of each and every treaty that might affect the rights and obligations for the litigant parties. So it is expected of the parties to invoke the relevant um, treaties and in that sense prove the existence of um, these rules. Evidently, between the two constitutive elements of customary international law, the subjective element, namely the opinion juris, is often difficult to identify. That is true for universal as well as uh, non-universal customary law. For this reason, general practice is often seen as a presumption of opinion juris, at least with respect to permissive and prescriptive rules. Indeed, the court has often inferred the existence of opinion juris from general practice of state content and has also been criticized um, for doing that. Yet this is not the case with respect to non-universal or regional custom where the for the establishment of which the court seems to require a stricter standard of proof. If we look, for example, at the case on the rights of US nationals in Morocco as an example, in that case, the US argument was that the custom and usage in Morocco created um, rights relating to extraterritorial jurisdictional um, consular jurisdiction. But that argument was dismissed by the court for lack of proof that such custom had become binding specifically on Morocco. A similar argument was uh, put forward in passage through the Great Belt where Finland suggested 
um, that its rite of passage derived from a year-long practice whereby Denmark allowed uh, drill ships and oil rigs to pass through the strait in question. Denmark um, contested that and the court uh, never pronounced uh, on the matter, but in all likelihood, and actually even as, as the, even the Finnish co-agents seem to admit, the court would have followed the Danish argument. So in some way, the court itself will ascertain and apply the relevant universal custom. The burden is put upon the party invoking the rule of regional custom um, instead. Moreover, while general practice with regards to universal custom is often regarded as a presumption of opinion juris, the existence of regional practice will not give rise to an equivalent presumption. Moving to assessing state consent as a condition for the application of non-universal custom. First of all, um, when it comes to assessing state consent as a condition for the existence, the question is first whether this is a necessary condition whereby each of the states among which the rule is said to apply actually has accepted the practice as law. And secondly, the question is whether the, whether state consent is enough to, um, to form or to establish um, a rule of customary law with non-universal application. First, with regard to whether it's a necessary condition, well, it depends, of course, um, if one follows the court, uh, the majority on the bench in asylum case, or whether one follows um, Judge Al um, Alvarez, but looking at what the court uh, elaborated upon was that there was a, a narrow understanding of the legal effect of any, of any such rule. More precisely, the court said that even if it could be supposed that such a custom existed between certain Latin American states only, it could not be invoked against Peru because it had refrained from ratifying two treaties which allegedly codified an existing customary um, rule recognizing the right to grant diplomatic asylum. In other words, the general practice in the region accepted as law would not suffice for the rule to be opposable to the other litigant party because specific acceptance uh, by Peru had never been given. So if you put that differently, while unanimous practice is not required for the formation of a universal custom with a carve out for, for persistent objectors, regional custom seems to be premised on a requirement of unanimous practice within the region. And that sits a bit oddly with the court's understanding of universal custom, of course. When a rule of universal custom is established, its binding force on the litigant parties is in principle independent of their participation in or adherence to that rule. Hardly ever does the court discuss whether it has specifically been accepted by the litigant parties before it. Peru's abstention from ratifying these two treaties contain, uh, containing uh, the rule is more akin to a simple negative attitude rather than an opposition. So in other words, Peru's conduct would in all likelihood not have met the persistent objector threshold had it been aimed against a rule of universal custom. Further, once a rule of universal custom is identified, it's a litigant party resisting its application that bears the burden of proof to prove its persistent objection. Thus, it seems that the, what we see in the principle enunciated in the asylum case by which rule of regional custom is only binding on a specific state by consent is much more akin to the equivalent with respect to treaty rules. A state may not incur rights of obligations from a treaty between third states in absence of its consent. 
And this was also affirmed by the ILC in its um, draft conclusions when they observed that a rule of non-universal custom itself creates neither obligations nor rights for third states. Accordingly, the applicability of a rule of regional custom in a specific case before the court will be contingent on whether it's recognized by the consenting states. Um, so Michael Wood in his draft concerning the method for identifying such uh, a rule suggested or proposed that it was necessary to ascertain whether there was a, there is a gen general practice among the states concerned that it is accepted by each of them as law. This wording was not ultimately adopted in the conclusion 16 itself, but it can be found in the commentary. In other words, the threshold for proving the acceptance by a state of a rule of non-universal custom would seem at least prima facie very high. In order for the court to recognize the existence, all affected states would have to have undertaken active steps in terms of practice and opinion jurists to support such an existence. However, such a high threshold in theory could of course be lowered in practice at least via two avenues. First of all, one could carefully and narrowly delimit the group of affected states, for example, looking at Sub-Saharan Africa rather than Africa as a region as such. And that could already significantly narrow the number of states whose practice and whose opinion jurist needs to be established. The second potential avenue to lower the threshold to find non-universal custom could be to apply a broad interpretation of what qualifies as acceptance of a practice as law. But there the interpret interpretative maneuvering space is a bit more restricted because it is quite clear that some form of active uh, conduct seems to be required rather than tacit acceptance. Nevertheless, an act of opposition to a particular practice combined with a lack of practice of behalf of a state that is in theory affected, um, but where the issue, for example, has never arisen in practice, would arguably not prevent a finding of a rule of particular custom if the practice of the other states, affected states, and their opinion jurists has been virtually uniform, has been consistent, and has been so for a period of time. The court would most likely focus on the practice of the states involved in the dispute and less so on the practice that for, of states that may form part of the group but who are not parties to the dispute. Either way, one of the main differences between non-universal and general custom is that the latter, general custom, is an opt-out system, whereas the former has rather been uh, formulated as an opt-in system for affected states. Silence could be viewed as acquiescence or as a lack of persistent objectives um, to falling within the scope of a universal rule, but not so for particular uh, custom. Now, the next question is, if we can find that such uh, consent has been given by affected states, is this also sufficient to establish that there is uh, such a rule of custom? Faced with a Portuguese claim concerning the right of passage over Indian territory um, based on local custom, India relied on the asylum case um, to argue that custom could not be established between two states only. But there the court said it was hard to see why the number of states between which a local custom may be established must necessarily be larger than two. For the court, continued practice between states that was mutually accepted as law could well govern um, bilateral relations. So in other words, consent was not was necessary, but it was also sufficient to find and apply such a rule. 
What these cases demonstrate is that the concept of a particular geographical region is largely legally irrelevant for the application of a given rule. The legally pertinent distinction is not between a uni universality and regionalism, but rather between the rules of general and special application. So the term particular custom is hence to be preferred over the more imprecise term um, regional custom or the outright clunky term of non-universal custom. Rules of international law that are valid only for certain states constitute particular international law and are distinguished from rules valid for all states uh, in the world, which, are, um, which is arguably what customary law, general customary law is about. Subject, of course, to peremptory rules, particular international law, if it is found to exist, applies in a given case in derogation of universal international law. And that is why in the right of passage case, for example, the court did not find it necessary to ascertain whether there was also a rule of a universal custom once it had found a rule of particular custom. It's then understandable that um, particular custom cannot escape from this fundamental consensualist principle uh, of individual consent as the rules on uh, universal custom might. While membership of the international uh, community guarantees the binding force of universal custom on a state, membership of a specific region is neither necessary nor sufficient for the application of a given rule. In this sense, there could be customs existing among groups of states which are linked to each other, not by geogra uh, geographical proximity, but by historical, racial, political, religious, or other affinities. And that has already been uh, tried or discussed before the court as well. For example, Judge Coe suggested that the court should have considered well, whether Belgium might have been granted locus standi in the Barcelona traction case by virtue of a rule of particular custom applicable among capitalist states. Um, also the ILC in its draft conclusions on the identification of custom avoided the term regional custom, but did indeed refer to a rule of particular customary international law whether regional, local, or other, is a rule of customary international law that applies only among a limited number of states. And um, it's further observed that that could develop among states linked by a common cause and common interest or a common activity rather than geographical position. And um, I see that, I, I would say that this is the correct approach, particularly as it is to some extent analogous to or an extension of the position of specially affected states whose practice should have been both extensive and virtually uniform um, in order to find a universal rule of custom. But it does leave open the question as to whether, oops, the question as to whether there should be any limits to such common causes or interests or activities that would qualify. Even though the exercise, of course, is impossible, uh, one cannot compile a list of exhaustive or com even comprehensive um, causes or actions that, um, that would, could form the basis of such particular custom. You could think of certain geomorphological features, such as countries having aquifers or countries being landlocked. Um, one could also think of certain characteristics, such as religion or language. But these causes and interests are far more dynamic. So just to give as an example, um, after a change of government uh, in Australia, the um, emissions trading system that was being set up between, the Australia, uh, between Australia and the EU um, was abolished. And 
one could say that combating climate change and in particular setting up an emissions trading system could be seen as a common cause. But what does it mean if then one country suddenly withdraws from such a system? Other examples are, are thinkable. Um, and the more you think about it, the more you realize that uh, with changes of, of government, it might be, particularly if, if they're sort of in quick sequence, it might make the discernment of a uniform practice over time a quite uh, difficult exercise. And this serves to show that caution is warranted. A too broad approach may undermine what is currently a rather static system of custom. Once a rule of custom has emerged, has been uh, recognized, has been applied, it generally does not disappear again. It certainly wouldn't serve the stability and predictability of the law if particular custom would, be, would seem to be popping in and out of existence. In theory, one could think of a system whereby, um, similar to the denunciation of treaties, whereby a termination period needs to be respected, but there are numerous um, practical difficulties with that. But it appears that non-universal rules of custom share more with treaty rules than they do with universal rules of custom in terms of their legal effect. But at the same time, they are deprived of possibly the main advantages of treaties, namely specificity and clarity in how they articulate rights and obligations. So I don't think it's surprising to anyone that the ICJ has shown itself very reluctant to address questions of particular custom. Um, for example, in the Costa Rica-Nicaragua case on navigational and related rights, um, the court considered that a boundary treaty answered all the questions and they didn't even enter into the arguments based on uh, regional custom. In doing so, and I do this more in detail in uh, the paper, the court echoed its predecessor, which had very much um, the same approach. The last element that I would like to address is whether or to what extent um, applying and interpreting non-universal uh, custom is like playing a legal accordion in terms of either universalizing, broadening um, non-universal custom, or on the other hand, very much restricting it to a purely bilateral context. The cases that I've discussed so far, the asylum case, right of passage, etc., very much uh, in those cases, the ICJ very much reduced the claims of regional custom to specific bilateral relations. But that's only half of the picture. The court has also elevated rules originally adopted in a particular region to a universal level, affirming their application as um, general international law. And a clear example of that can be found in the advisory opinion on the reservations to the Genocide um, Convention. When ascertaining uh, the permissibility of reservations to multilateral conventions, the court distanced itself from what was the dominant system at the time, namely that reservations had to be unanimously um, accepted. Instead, it referred to the Latin American practice, which permitted uh, reservations, which was um, of recent uh, growth in, that, in those days, and most importantly, was actually derived from a treaty commitment uh, under the Pan-American Union. Nevertheless, the court decided to, to recognize this as a rule of universal custom. And as a result, a new approach encouraged widespread use of reservations and was actually then codified in the Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties. Similarly, with regard to the principle of uti possidetis, the court stated that the maintenance of the territorial status quo at the time of independence was um, the approach to follow in Burkina Faso, Mali. 
Um, it was not long before that judgment that the Beagle Channel arbitration had considered Utiposidetis as something peculiar to the field of uh, countries that formerly resided under the Spanish uh, crown. Yet the ICJ decided that it was a general principle which is logically connected uh, with the phenomenon of obtaining independence wherever it occurs. And what we then see is that um, suddenly the decolonization of Africa, where arguably there were various factual legal differences with the, the context in Latin America, followed the same Utidetis principle, which was then also later picked up by the Badenter Commission in an altogether different and non-colonial context. So that's an example of expanding. Now, when we look at specifying, I have already um, highlighted the, what the court said in this regard, but you can see that um, litigant states have taken their cue from the court and have refrained from formulating claims on the basis of regional rules of custom, but they have rather compressed their claims towards specificity or again dilated them to uh, universality. And for example, when Norway was trying in the Anglo-Norwegian fisheries case to bring a claim that was actually a very particular claim with regard to straight baselines, it persuaded the court that the what it was proposing was not a regional customary rule, but rather a method of maritime delimitation that it was justified under general custom while taking into account some uh, factors uh, for particular to the region. Um, similarly, uh, or in, differently put, what the court was prepared to do was to embed special considerations in what was nevertheless seen as a general rule. And a similar thing happened in, with Denmark's pleadings in the North Sea Continental Shelf case, as well as the territorial and maritime dispute between uh, Nicaragua and Honduras. Conversely, states that sought to rely on practice giving rise to a legal right towards their neighbor, very much focused on bilateral uh, relations with their counterpart, and only in two cases um, did this actually work, the right of passage case and the navigational and relational um, related rights case, as I have already, um, already established. Now, I would like to conclude here by saying, well, first of all, I think even though this is a fascinating topic from an academic perspective, I think we can conclude that neither regional or particular custom has been a great success in winning one's case um, before the International Court of Justice. Either the rule had to be widened or it had to be um, specified, made specific to the relation between the two litigant parties. And what we can see is that this pulling in opposite directions um, is something that was adopted by the court, supported by the court, and is now also generally applied and argued um, by the parties. Does that mean that there is there cannot be such a thing as taking into account as uh, regional concerns or particular concerns? No, because as I said, apart from, from um, bringing these factors of particular or um, regional concern into the interpretation of an international um, rule of international custom, as for example, Norway did, there are two other options. One is that, um, more attention is paid, as I already mentioned, to the position of specially affected states when concluding that there is a rule of um, Castro, general universal Castro international law. And the other one would be, for example, to allow for 
derogation from treaties by means of, of reservations, for example, achieved by way of reservations to a ratified treaty rule. Um, in that way, the aims and claims of particular groups may be articulated effectively and in a way that is far more likely to be recognized by the ICJ than hammering away on the existence of a particular regional um, or particular custom. Such a process would in itself be more accustomed to the mode of operation of the court, which always tends to work from the particular to the general, and approaches specific claims between litigant parties against the backdrop of uh, universal principles such as state consent and um, universalism. And I think I should, in light of time, conclude here. Thank you very much.